Mi gente, bienvenidos a mi gente. Welcome back to my 17th episode in Feliz Navidad a todos. Merry Christmas to everybody. It's that time of year. This episode explores the use of force topic even further. I did this episode, use of force, earlier in the year. I've come back. My guest for this episode, Howie Scott, a 31-year law enforcement veteran joins me to provide his expert insight on the matter of use of force. He provides a unique perspective from his impressive resume that includes 15 years as an operator on a SWAT team in the D.C. metropolitan area. In five years as an instructor that taught recruits in tactics and the use of force scenarios. Let's get to the episode and hear from Howie Scott. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a incredible uh, Brownie and Blue podcast episode. So I had an earlier episode, probably in the beginning of the year, when defunding the police and all use of force incidences were the hot button topic in the media and the narrative against police. So I wanted to have an expert on um, who is an expert in use of force uh, just based on his career. So let me go ahead and introduce you to my next guest uh, for Brownie and Blue. He is uh, Howie Scott, a 31-year-old veteran, or I'm sorry, a 31-year veteran from, uh, from law enforcement, six years with the Sheriff's Office, 26 years with the D.C. Area Police Department which six of those years were on patrol, 15 years on SWAT, which stands for Special Weapons and Tactics, and five years at the academy as an instructor. Let's welcome Howie Scott. How you doing, Howie? Hey, MC, how you doing, man? Good to connect with you. Great to, great to hear from you again, and uh, thanks for that uh, introduction there. Uh, I wish I was 31 years old, but um, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Go ahead and get into the first question uh, for you. And, you know, one of the things that I always ask guests is, what inspired you to become a police officer? Yeah, so right on. Uh, uh, this is a good question. And uh, I wish I had some, you know, long story background, always wanted to be uh a cop or whatever. And I think that was kind of when I was growing up, it was kind of, you know, police, fireman type thing growing up, but really didn't set in. I'd set my path on uh, being an athlete and um, ended up going to a college and wrestled. And I just couldn't figure out that they uh, were paying me to wrestle and go to school. I figured out the wrestling part, but not the school part. So after about two years, 
uh, I was faced with the opportunity of leaving with a positive GPA or continuing and seeing if we could get that uh, GPA into negative numbers. So I withdrew and uh, I started doing construction with the guy uh, that was in my church. And uh, one day, uh, a guy in my church uh, who was uh, the sheriff of, of the county I worked in, he asked me a question. He said, uh, hey, I know you like doing this construction thing, but have you ever thought of anything called like medical insurance? I'm like, wow. <laughs> He's like, you know, like if you got a splinter in your eye or something, what would you do? I'm like, I don't know, just try to pick it out or something because I don't have any insurance, you know? Right. So that kind of that kind of got it uh, the ball rolling that there was uh, there were careers out there that were kind of kind of seemed cool, but also uh, had these things called benefits in retirement. Right. And I, and I so I, I started to become an adult at that point, and uh, I found my way applying for the sheriff's office, and uh, lo and behold, uh, one of the uh, the sergeants in hiring at that point in time, he said, "Hey, listen." Uh, how many speeding tickets have you gotten? I'm like, funny you should ask that. Because <laughs> I had received a couple uh, prior to applying. He's like, you might want to go take this uh, class voluntarily. They give you five good points after you complete it. Right. So I, I needed to clean up my driving record for, for a couple speeding tickets prior to even going in there. But um, the, the, the gentleman, the sheriff at that point in time, which is a great man, um, he's still active in the law enforcement community today and um, was very inspirational as far as uh, leading me into that path of law enforcement. And uh, actually, it's kind of funny because after about five and a half years, I'd, I'd reached the point where I was ready to make a decision to, to leave um, and go to the police department and get out on the street. And I went to him and I remember talking in his backyard because I didn't want to dishonor him after everything he'd done for me. Mm -hmm. And I told him what I was thinking. And he said, well, I'll tell you right now, my first love has always been the street. And that was all I needed to hear. I kind of got his okay. And I started the uh, uh, application process for the police department. So let me, let me um, come in because some listeners may not understand the difference between a sheriff's department or a sheriff's office versus a police department. And can you explain yeah, what the are, difference, what's the difference between the two? Yeah, in some places they aren't, you know, and, and really in the majority of the country, uh, a lot of people, their local law enforcement, uh, the enforcement is done by the sheriff's office. But in this, in some larger counties, the sheriff's office is responsible for maintaining the jail, the courthouse and uh, civil process. And that's how it was in our sheriff's office. So I actually started my um, um, career off in, in confinement, working in the jail. Oh, and wow. uh, I really do credit that time in the jail on giving me a handle on how to talk to people mm -hmm. and treat them with dignity and respect, even though they were uh, incarcerated at the time. And you, you come to find out most people in jail are not bad people. Truly, there are one percenters, but the majority of people in that have been incarcerated in a jail have just made bad life choices, right? That, that landed them there. So I quickly found out the more that you were able to treat people with dignity and respect, because that's about all they have left um, when they're being told to what time to go to bed, what time to get up, get out of your cell, go in a day room, 
here's your food, you know, all choice has been taken away from them. So I quickly found out the, the easier I was, uh, more I was to do that with folks, uh, the easier my day went. And you could tell uh, when you took over a post from a deputy that didn't have that concept. I mean, their floor was just a mess. The doors were rocking off the hinges. Uh, and so it, it, it was a very uh, frustrating place to work at times. Mm -hmm. um, but I often said that there's a lot of guys that work inside the jail that could be good street cops and not a lot of street cops that could be good jailers. <laughs> that, <laughs> Take that a special is, person to. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I've never worked the jail. Uh, I obviously was in the police department side and, you know, the sheriff's office, which I've seen a lot of in our jurisdictions and the, here in the DC area and, and um, certain surrounding counties. But, I, you know, the, for the layman, I think the difference from the sheriff's office, as you just put it from a civil process, that's what they, that's part of what they do, but it's also the sheriff is what an elected official. And then the police department has county executors that pretty much, you know, put in place whoever the chief is for that police department. Would you say that's probably one of the main differences outside of like the civil process and the jails? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, the sheriff is an elected official, like he said. And so technically he holds the highest uh, law enforcement power in the state uh, due to that election process. And then, yeah, most commonly board of supervisors, town council um, go out and seek applicants for their chief's position and then they appoint the chief. So there is a, uh, you know, there is a politics side involved in, in sheriff um, nomination. Um, right. I, I don't, it, I think it now, it probably plays into all, all areas though, you know, police and, and sheriff, some of the politics, unfortunately, but, um, yeah. you know, it, it, it does give them um, the ability to either continue uh, being reelected or having new uh, uh, sheriffs elected uh, by the people. Yeah, so what you touched on also with your career and just even your impressive resume is that you not only did the sheriff's office and you did confinement as you talked about, but you also went to the street. But one thing that um, is very unique and not everybody gets to do it um, is that you were part of a SWAT team. And can you talk about what, who inspired you to want to even process for the SWAT team once you got to the different department that you applied for and you, you, you went onto the street? If you can go over that. Yeah, once again, my first encounter with uh, SWAT team members was when I was working at the jail on the booking desk. And, uh, you know, you look at these guys coming in, they're all dressed in black at that time. And, uh, they're bringing folks in. They brought a lot more people into the jail than, than they did when I was on the team. Um, we just had officers transport folks for us, but at that point in time, they're doing a lot more street level stuff. And every time they came in, man, those guys were so professional, um, always had time to talk to me, you know, and sometimes there's that separation, you know, unfortunately between police and deputies and, you know, and, and sometimes the deputies don't get the respect they're due. Uh, but these guys always had the time and would talk to me and say, hey, man, you know, you like being here and stuff. And we're trying to talk me into leaving, but they let it be known out there. That there's life after after the sheriff's department. And 
some of those guys I got to know on first name basis. And it, that wasn't always the same uh, encounter I had with officers off the street even sometimes, right? But these guys made an impression on me with their professionalism. And uh, those were the guys that inspired me when I made my decision. Because I, I thought if I left to go to the police department, I wanted to go somewhere and make a difference. Um, and I, I thought, you know, people call the police on their bad day, and then they call, you know, SWAT gets activated on somebody's worst day. So that was kind of my goal from there. Once I left the sheriff's office is I didn't have any inspirations to be a supervisor. There's nothing wrong with that. And a lot of people tell you that's where you need to go if you want to make good retirement. But um, my passion was to become a member of the team. Also knowing that it was a full-time team and only 12 people out of 1,400 would be selected to be in one of those positions was pretty, pretty admirable to say uh, the type of people you're uh, dealing with. And then just the team environment. I'd always been on teams, you know, in sports and everything. So I just, I just thought that would be a really, really cool thing to do if I was able to achieve that. That's a definitely a very coveted position from, you know, from what I understand and from what I've experienced. I've tried out and went through the process and it's very rigorous. Um, and it's, it's actually very impressive as well, just with the, you're right. I mean, the professionalism that they have and just the way that they carry themselves is, I hate to say it, but it's above and beyond, right? Like it's a, it's a matter of absolute discipline. Um, and, and that discipline kind of goes into the training. So when you were on the SWAT team for what, 15 years, correct? Yep. What were your responsibilities like in relation to the department you worked for? Yeah. So, you know, when you go up to the team, um, they, they start to, you know, try to see where your strengths and weaknesses are. And, uh, being 5'10", 220, uh, pretty much a power lifter, uh, I found out really quickly I wasn't going to be an entry guy, you know, <laughs> when they start breaking into specialties. Um, I could, you know, uh, I was blessed in the fact that I was around a bunch of really talented folks, and they made me rise to the level I, I was capable of being. And if you're in either 12th position or first position <coughs> within that team, uh, as far as if you're looking at scores or something on handguns, long guns, um, you're still sitting in a pretty good group. Um, we had some people that were just so talented during my run that I would never be able to touch them as far as their, their uh, marksmanship skills. But I was still uh, in the top 12, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, But I do remember one particular story because when you first come up there, as you know, the uh, handgun scores currently for the patrol officers are not um, exceptionally high to make the minimum. Right. Uh, I think it's 187 out of 250, right? right? But that quickly changes once you go to the team and you have to qualify 98%, which means you can have two out, the simple math, on the, um, on the handgun course. And it gets harder as, as you progress with each weapon system. And... Um, the sniper course, you could only have one out uh, uh, through the whole course uh, and still qualify. So um, I was struggling a little bit coming up with handguns. And, you know, one of the, it, once again, the professionalism of the, of the team and the people on the team uh, that, that were helping me, I tried to pass on as it, with other operators as they came on 
but one particular evening, my buddy DC, he was uh, committed to stay after work in the dark. And then it became a horrific snowstorm. And we were at the, the old range shooting handguns with headlights on the car, um, trying to uh, you know make me become more proficient. That was a dedication he had to me as a team member and a friend. And I will never forget that. And, and that was something that always stuck with me to pass on to those folks that might be struggling. It's good when you struggle because then you can help people. When you're really good, you don't know how to correct the problems because you never had it. So I was always good at helping people because I had lots of problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, struggle, you know, struggle is what creates growth, correct? I mean, that's what, that's what makes you understand where your weaknesses are and what you are struggling in, not only in the training, but also in life. So it just kind of oh, correlates. Yeah, um, yeah and, and, and so I had a lot of knowledge to pass on after the years from all my struggles. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so what was the, so here's the thing. So everybody that loves the Hollywood versions of policing, they definitely love the SWAT aspects of it, right? Like they had, what was it, LL Cool J and, and uh Colin, I think Farrell, they did that movie SWAT, um, Samuel Jackson. So they have SWAT, you know, and it's, it's glorified. And okay. they show them like pretty much saving the world from like terrorists and stuff like that. But can you talk about like what the day-to-day -day was within the team structure of your SWAT team? Sure. So it kind of goes back to responsibilities, right? And, and I left a little bit of that out. So not being an entry guy, I quickly became a sniper and a, and a breacher. Uh, I guess they figured I was good at breaking things. So, um, but there's actually a lot of intel that goes into uh, creating a successful breach. And really it's, you know, one of the most, if not uh, important jobs when you're get, doing an entry is to get in, right? Uh, so, you know, the, the uh, to answer your question, I would say, it was training, man. We were just training all the time. We were also really busy as a team. Um, when I was putting in an application and doing my resume, uh, I was having some of the guys help me out with, you know, during that time. So roughly about 100, 120 uh, ops a year, uh, majority of those being search warrants. So, you know, we were just continuing uh, to, tra to train um, all the time. And the benefit of training, it built confidence in yourself and the confidence in your teammates around you. And that was like the biggest luxury I've seen over time. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to the point, you know, in operations, communication was no more than a hand signal, right? Um, and that, and that, or, or in more times than not, just knowing what the other guy's gonna do and reacting off of his movement or him reacting off of your movement, mm -hmm. uh, doing room entries and things like that no choreograph. Yeah, we didn't do a SWAT roll and shoot, you know, on the move like that they did in the movie. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it is pretty well glorified in a lot of those, those type movies, but people like it because like I said earlier, I think on the worst day, that's when the team's activated, right? Or for the worst uh, type of criminal or warrant, you know, might be. And you really don't think about that in the moment. Um, you know, I, I used to say, uh, you know, what's stress for me? It's not standing at the door of a uh, potential uh, guy who's dealing drugs and known to have weapons 
and, and breaching that door and going in and making the entry. That wasn't stressful. It was more stressful coming home with a new pair of shoes and trying to explain to my wife, uh, how come I had new shoes in my hand, you know? <laughs> you know, um, it's, uh, it's interesting, right? I mean, I think, I think a lot of people look at just policing in general, they'll say, oh, the training needs to be better you know, these cops are trained and, and people really don't know the locale of certain areas where training's really non-existent. But you were within a department that not only provided great training, but you were on a team that got incredible opportunities in all different types of training. So how did your training like play a part in the use of force incidences that you were involved with? Like, go, go, Talk about that kind of mindset in the training and then also just the action oriented stuff. Yeah, so the, you know, the, the mindset's huge in, in the training aspect of it. And we trained, um, like I said, every day, if we weren't doing an operation, we were doing a, uh, a training day and we became very proficient in our skills. The majority of our work was uh, doing search warrants. So we spent a ton of time in the shoot house. Um, we got to the point where uh, we assigned guys and teams of two to uh, set up training, right, for the month or for the week, and then alternate it, always trying to create fresh training, change things up. The shoot house looks the same, but we got very creative in how we could change things up and uh, evolve our training from the last training evolution and, and see where we could find our failures, right? If you go mm -hmm. in and do everything right the first time, uh, then you really haven't learned anything from your training. And you can't have training that just makes you win every time, right? You right. have to see, uh, push the envelope and see, okay, here's where we need to scale it back. Here's where we need to improve it. Uh, our training has to continue to evolve. Someone once told me, just because it's tradition doesn't mean it's a good tradition, right? right. And, and, and a lot of you know, teams or agencies fall into that. This is the way we've been doing it. This is the way we're going to continue to do it. Um, and the training uh, suffers a real scar and uh, we're okay with uh, mediocrity when you're in a business where you're given the power where at some point in time you might have to take someone's life I think you have to constantly push your training uh, to get better and one of the things I know when I first came on a team we do barricade training and we do it for eight hours and mm -hmm. if you were a sniper once the entry team made uh uh, entry, the sniper position was done. And a lot of times the training would take place at places you could get after dark. And it seemed like it was always either raining or cold. So you'd sit out on your sniper mat under your poncho or something for the next six hours waiting for the entry team to find the guy in the last closet. So we changed that and we started to make much shorter training evolutions, but focusing on the intricate parts of the operation itself. And that became a much uh, more valuable training evolution than just the long drawn out ones. So, you know, you, you, you talked about two different things and, and, you know, some of the listeners may not know what this is. So I'm just going to say, you know, a shoot house is just a, it's a, a replica of kind of like a building where you know, you have doors and, and walls and, you know, whatever it is, and you're, you're, you're using that place to pretty much determine or to do the training of maybe, you know, uh, working on entries 
working on the flow of going into rooms, how many people in a room, um, doing all types of different things with that, in a sense, that, as you call it, shoot house. Um, and, and that's part of the evolution of the training is you can kind of switch that shoot house up to not make it look the same and put different kind of role players, dummies, stuff like that in it, um, which is awesome because it not only provides you with kind of a real world inoculation, but for you, you know, you, you did this every single day for four or for 15 years and you, you know, every day, eight hours, nine hours, if you guys weren't on a call, whatever the case is, can you tell like any stories that highlight positive or negatively uh, in a sense of positive, which is like the training that just took over and then the negative where it's like possibly maybe a lack of training or maybe just a lack of attention? Oh, yeah. So great question. And that just popped into my head because I think this kind of fits in with your question really good. Um, and um, we were doing some training and it was uh, active shooter training and we had hooked up and you had a guest on your last podcast who was uh, the, actually the person that um, hooked us up with uh, the people at uh, um, Pulse Heart Monitor. Okay. And she came down from Chicago and hooked us all up with heart monitors, right? And we've been training active shooter training since 1999. Forgive me, I don't know exactly when this training took place, but mm -hmm. they ran all the SWAT guys through it and then uh, take, took their heart rate. And only one person on the team during that scenario, and we didn't know the scenario, but we went in as a, in as a team, right? And um, only one person's heart rate spiked over 121, 121 beats per minute, which is really good when you're in a high stress set, uh, situation. Mm -hmm. um, matching that with patrol officers taken off the street who were um, very commonly in the 180s, 190s, where, where um, if you wanted to actually get results of that as a follow-up from, from your last guest, I'm sure he still has them. But um, uh, fine motor skills go out the window which mm -hmm. operating a handgun, decision-making, all those type of things. And we saw um, lots of errors being made once people's heart rates um, um, got into that high zone. And poor, like I said, poor decisions, shoot, don't shoot, things like that were, were happening. Um, and it didn't happen uh, with the guys who were hot, more highly trained and trained on a regular basis. So there's a positive and a negative in the same exact scenario and a demonstration of lack of training. That's, man, that, that encapsulates it. You're right, you know, I, I remember going through the academy, they kept talking about um, uh, tunnel vision and how tunnel vision pretty much affects, you know, it's all based off of what you're just talking about, these stressors, these kind of things that, you know, are such a stress to make your breathing, your lack of breathing, all that stuff go up, your heart rate go up to the point where you're just looking pretty much at a very pinpointed um, thing, whether you're driving or whether you're in a situation. So the first thing they tell you to do once you're in tunnel vision is to breathe. And I remember going through SWAT training uh, the two times that I have, and I remember the instructors were always big on replicating exercise before shooting 
in order to just kind of inoculate you to be able to settle your breath and be able to just kind of open up the view that's in front of you as opposed to, you know, the opposite is what you talked about, getting to that high rate of a heartbeat where your fine motor skills go out the window. Um, and then also your viewing, you know, goes right into tunnel vision. So yeah, I mean, that's an oh, incredible, yeah. yeah, that's an incredible example. I mean, the fact that you guys had heart monitors put on you and all that was tested, that's just uh, amazing. Um, so, you know, I wanted to, I wanted you to come on to the show because you have this expertise and there's this, there's just this narrative that's out there about, you know, police officers and how they're getting into a lot of these use of force incidences. And you not only have done SWAT, but you've also trained officers at the tail end of your career where you were in the academy training officers. And can you talk about like what's taught in the academy as far as use of force and the difference from that to, in a sense, real world application? Absolutely. And just to really quick go back and touch on, because I'm kind of a geek about uh, breathing. Um, right. It's important, right? But uh, to this day, I still teach uh, tactical breathing developed by Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, taught to all Special Forces SWAT teams. Um, uh, you know, he calls it tactical breathing because people wouldn't get into it if you called it Lamaze, right? Uh, <laughs> but it's similar. Right. You know, it's uh, four cycles of, of deep breathing in through the nose, hold for four, um, out through the mouth, and, and, and cycle that through four times. Something we did in the van, getting ready to hit a, uh, hit a house routinely, right? And what that does is it, it um, opens up not only your tunnel vision, but your hearing, you know, because the body's really smart. Um, it knows where to send the most gas in a high stress situation. So if someone's facing you with a weapon, what you hear is gonna be uh, less than what you actually see because your eyes are saying, I need everything now, right? And right. it creates that tunnel vision. You hit on another very important word, which was inoculation and stress training. That is so important because when we talk, talk about this question about academy training, um, and I'm not bashing anybody's program or anything, but a lot of the techniques that are used in academy training styles work because you have a compliant individual. One of the guys I've followed and studied under and really saw him when I was with my department, I was fortunate enough to go through his instructor course for law enforcement is Tony Blower. Mm. He was, and I've been a train, I'd been a defensive tactics instructor for 20 years at this point, but he was the first guy ever that I'd seen that took defensive tactics and looked at the science and what actually happens to your body during that moment of ambush. Because if you and I decide to meet up and go fight, that's consensual, right? Right. But when we meet people on the street, it's not usually consensual, right? Or <laughs> you're in the wrong line of work if you're challenging guys to fights on the street. Um, so it's usually an ambush, a weapon's displayed, someone jumps out quickly, that a fight just sparks off, whatever. So he took what the body naturally does upon the ambush moment. And your body's geared to give a reaction to uh, protect your brain housing. So that means your hands come up um, in front of your face. And um, 
and, and so he developed a system off of that. The Blower uh, system is developed off of how your body naturally acts at the startle flinch response. Unfortunately, in the area I was around, not a whole lot of people or instructors had bought into that program um, full force. And, and I think what it does is it gives you a beginning. Mm -hmm. And then after that, because when I came out of his class, I'm like, well, all we did was throw our hands up in the air for like a week, you know? And we did more than that. But what he's saying is after that, he uses closest weapon, closest target, right? So you go through a simulated fight, basically, of what's the closest weapon. Well, it might be your right hand. All right, where would be the closest target? Where would I strike? So it creates a defense system um, where you're really making sense off of what your body wants to do. Uh, you know, goosenecks and escort holds. And um, the problem is a lot of these systems, you have to be proficient and a technician in it and practice it. You can't go 10 years, five years, five months out of the academy without practicing your techniques. And, you know, it, it, as hard as it is for me to say, in my experience, there's not a, a large majority of officers who really enjoy martial arts, defensive tactics on a regular basis. We would have classes at the academy and after we got the original 30, our class size would start to diminish because the interest level was low. We'd always have a strong 30, but after that, it got low. You might've experienced some of those same things in some of the classes you took. Oh yeah, yeah. It was always the guys that were, guys or gals that were pretty much headed to what they call specialty positions or wanted to go to specialty positions. And actually, even outside of that, just people that took seriously uh, their health and not only that, but just their protection and protecting the community. And knowing that they, there's always that what if of, well, what if I do get into a fight? What if I do have to uh, get into a shooting based off of a fight? What if I, you know, that type of officer were the ones that took that class. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to, you know, go on a diatribe here, but you've seen it within your career where we have officers that leave the academy. They learn the basics. They learn these things that, you know, are taught. And then, so for defensive tactics or whatever it is, once they leave, they get into the job and they, you know, never go back to the training, never do the training on their own, or even do the aspect of just working out and getting their heart rate up. And I think that's what's uh, pro very problematic across the board in what I've seen in, um, in the nation where, you know, there should be standardized ways, right? Like, I mean, there should be a standard for an officer. This is just my opinion. Uh, I think there should be a standard, a physical standard of what an officer needs to adhere to. And it's not, you know, the army, we, we entrust the same types of dangers and stuff with the military and they have standards, physical standards that they need to meet. But yet when it comes to policing our community, we're not held to that same standard, which to me is insane. Um, 100%. Yeah. And, and like you said, every, everything I talk about 
you know, this evening is, is based off experience and in my opinion, right? Um, right. And, and so, yeah, training is a big issue. Um, you, you ask any officer who's been in an evolved shooting, 90% uh, of the time, they're going to say I reverted back to my training, right? right? Yep. And, um, um, and, and so I think our depart the department I worked on over the past, and time escapes me, I would say 10, 15 years, has advanced their training. Um, I'm sure you can remember, um, you know, just standing and shooting and then finally it evolved into getting off the X, right? Right. And, yep. and creating movement. Um, and, and, and tactical training was done. That's the most beneficial training. Unfortunately, I'm sure there's some agencies across the country that uh, just shoot paper to get their qual in. They're not as fortunate as some of the largest jurisdictions that have larger training budgets. And some folks probably don't even get to shoot their qual more than once a year. And that, that's the extent of their, 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 their handgun training, right? right? But, you know, beyond that, because I was a defensive tactics instructor, um, I'm like, yeah, handgun, handgun training is important, right? You spend uh, 40 hours in the academy shooting and driving. Uh, we don't spend, you know, enough time with hands-on um, because you put your hands on a lot more people in a career than you do, um, um, it, you know, as far as shooting or getting in high-speed chases, right? Yep. So I, I understand the importance of that for sure and the proficiency and the marksmanship that comes with that, but we can't lose focus on, we put our hands on people every day, right? Yep. And so we need to be using techniques that work. Um, and that work not only on a compliant subjects and active, uh, you know, um, resistor, but someone who also might be that guy that's on PCP, right? Uh, how, how are we going to deal with that guy? Exactly. You know, and that's the thing. It's, uh, the, you know, this podcast is also about education for just the general public, you know, and, and, and here's the, what the general public gets. You know, you're familiar with uh, media scrutinized cases like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake cases, correct? Oh, yeah. So they get, you know, um, I know for George Floyd, I don't think any law enforcement officer out there was, you know, saying, oh, this is justified. And they were trying to justify anything because I, I didn't hear one, you know, but, you know, one specific case with, you know, and we can talk about all of them, but we won't have that much time. But one that, you know, I'm somewhat, I'm pretty familiar with, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the Breonna Taylor, where there was a SWAT entry um, that was into that apartment. And I just kind of wanted to see what your take was on that and how, just from your experience from being in SWAT and then what goes into it with how, from what your information is based off of that case like what is your take on that and how can you provide your kind of expertise and the mindset from the officer's standpoint that actually would do that uh, which is the SWAT team yes yeah, so you know first and foremost I, I, I say don't let the news uh, be your truth okay they report a story um, and then uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, people let that be their facts of the case right. to deem uh, innocence or guilt. And it's not fair to the, the suspect or the, or the officers 
because we don't know at that point. It's too fresh. Um, so you, if you really care about something, you, you need to dig into it and find out information and allow facts to come out. Uh, I know there's rusted judgment. One of the first things that was put out there was it was a no-knock uh, no warrant, right? Yep. Uh, to, to the point where uh, they got rid of no-knocks in, in that state. And, and I believe state of Virginia is trying to follow suit. I don't know if you know that or not. Wow. Um, but uh, so no-knocks have to rise to a certain threat level before they're even authorized anyway. But um, that particular case to me initially didn't seem correct just on the tactics that were uh, being discussed and thrown about the news uh, right away. Tragic case, of course, but as facts, more facts came out, more of the truth came out. Mm -hmm. You talk about the, uh, the indiscriminate gunfire that took place by one of the officers. Well, a lot of times these officers are judged by folks who have never been in gunfire. I never even heard the report of gunfire, but I know if you hear gunfire, it's not clearly identifiable where it's coming from immediately because of sounds, echoes. We were in a place one time and a uh, uh, guy did get shot and, and we were in a crowded apartment with lots of people and lots of stuff. And it was very muffled. We actually had taken a beanbag shotgun and very familiar with that sound. And everybody who's in the uh, furthest room away was almost 100% sure that that was a beanbound round that was deployed, uh, uh, less lethal, less than lethal round that was deployed. And it turned out to be a gunshot. So I, I would say that in all fairness to everybody, you have to let facts of the case come out and not run with a uh, story on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, any of the media outlets that report things initially and, and hold that as truth. I think we've seen in a number of high profile cases that once facts got out, and that's another, you know, I think misunderstanding of some folks that they think that maybe all the facts are out, but the police department is obligated to do a thorough investigation um, before they uh, uh, allow facts to come out. And in, unless there's an immediate threat to the uh, safety of the public, then they need to release something immediately. But that would be more of a safety information bulletin than, a, uh, than facts of a case. There's a lot that goes into it, the crime scene, um, picking the puzzle apart and then trying to put it back together again. And, I, and like I said, I think in most of these cases, whether it was determined the fault uh, came out uh, on the officer's side or there are other circumstances that cleared them, that more facts came out. And it's not fair to try a case of anybody, even if it was a self-defense case, a homeowner defending his home, it's not fair to try that person in the media prior to um, uh, the facts being, being known. Yeah, you know, this is a good, um, it's a good segue because you talked about this no-knock warrant and just from my, from my experience, you know, uh, dealing with SWAT and knowing what goes into it in the level, you talked about there has to be a level that rises to even get that 
no-knock warrant, um, which goes into this next question about, you know, as a SWAT operator for you, 15 years, you have experience with all types of um, cases, search warrants, dangerous people. Talk about what has to rise. Like, what's the what? What is that standard? If you can, if you can expound on that, as far as the no-knock warrant, what 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 is that standard? And then also, what goes into why something, why a case would rise to the SWAT team, and what does the SWAT team do once that case knocks on their door? Yeah, so, you know, speaking in general terms, I don't want to give away anybody's SWAT, SWAT secrets or anything like that, but <laughs> in general, and you know, in general terms, there has to be a threat level, right, uh, in order for SWAT to even get approached on uh, uh, taking a warrant. And uh, we've looked at warrants and, and, and declined them based on they didn't rise to the occasion. And we've uh, also taken warrants and said, yeah, I think this is something we should do. The warrant itself is uh, to go into the home or, or wherever the warrant's going to be executed is to make it a safer environment for the officers and the suspects and any innocents that might be in there. By using SWAT special weapons and tactics, once again, reverting back to your training, and this is what you do, this is what you train for, this is what you do to do it most safely. One of the com common terms that's used is speed, surprise, and violence of action. Mm. And people are often turned off by the, the, the term violence of action. M most of the time, I'd say the violence of action would be um, the door coming open, either opened by the suspect or someone inside the house. If it did rise to a no-knock, uh, uh, breaching the door and making entry. Um, but you work off a of sensory overload. So, uh, a SWAT team making entry and coming into the house and then annou uh, announcing prior to going in who they are, why they're there. And uh, that kind of is, presents a sensory overload to people inside, right? So you have a dominant position once you enter the home. And once again, the training that you have, and in in, uh, we call them live reps. Every successful search warrant is a live rep. And that's the other thing too, live, there's nothing like live reps. A guy, one of the older guys that was on the team when I first came up, you know, he used to say, there's no practice like live practice. Cause you can simulate everything you can think of in a shoot house scenario, but until you go through the door, you don't really know what you got, right? So that's why it's always important to know what the guy in front of you is doing and the guy behind you is doing, cause you may have to take their position at some point in time. So I, I think, those tactics are sound. And what, like I said earlier, what it does is it pre, uh, creates a, a safer environment for the officers and the individuals on the other side of the door. So let me ask you this, like we, we've talked about a lot of these things and we've talked about tactics and use of force. And we've talked about the media, we've talked about, don't look at, seven seconds, one minute, whatever it is, snippet of video and commentary. 
So what is lacking, like in how the community sees use of force incidences in your opinion? Yeah, so I think um, it's knowledge of, um, and um, let's face it, like 1% of the population, just under a million people are cops, right? Mm -hmm. So they, and cops experience things every day that the rest of the population do not. So they're not exposed to it. Then SWAT teams are even a, a smaller percentage of that who are doing high risk warrants, barricades, and uh, other details. So their experience and inoculation of that um, is something that they have, right? But now when we see a short snippet, and let me be perfectly clear, whenever force is used, it doesn't look good, right? But there's an action to cause a reaction. So based off of action is the, is the reaction you get. You go in through the door and the guy throws his hands up. You say, please don't move. All right, then your reaction is, sir, can you do me a favor to turn around, put your hands behind your back? That's right. his action reaction, right? Right. Adversely, if he does something that causes a different reaction, then I have to react, right? Um, and I've often said, no one, no one knows how they're gonna react until bullets are coming their way, right? Mm -hmm. And fortunately, a lot of the people that are ju making judgment haven't been in that position. So until you've been in a position like that, and that's why I was very cautious in commenting on the cases you mentioned um, until I had more facts. And it's gonna take probably a minimum of a year to get a, a decent amount of those facts to start even understanding what was going on. What was going on prior? What was going on? What was the temperature? What, how long had they been sitting in the van? Uh, you know, did the suspect leave? Did he come back? So many variables come into play that are unknowns that can't right. possibly be portrayed in seven seconds, a minute, whatever video that's out there. Once again, most videos are, are reactionary, right? An action that's took place to cause that video to come on. So we don't have the action, the initial action. Um, so I think, it's, it's a knowledge base um, and um, we're just quick as a society. I mean, you can go down, down the road and people will race you to the next red light. I'm like <laughs> 50, 55 miles an hour, you know, but people go 70 and you catch right up to them at the next stoplight. We're in such a hurry. A lot of that is technology driven, right? Mm -hmm. Want to know what's going on? Hit our phone, right? Which takes us back to tunnel vision. I call that technical tunnel vision because we're tied to our phones so much, we miss everything that's around us. Um, I like that. Really, really poor situational safety uh, when we're tied to our phones like that. Uh, I was up in Boston training with the uh, Boston uh, subway, and forgive me if anybody's from Boston listening, I forget the name of the, the, what they call it up there, but great, great guys up there. But they had a thing called apple picking. So the person sitting next to the uh, door is sitting in a seat, Doors would come open uh, to a subway platform. Guy would come in, punch the guy in the face, take his Apple product. It's <laughs> called apple, apple picking. You know, wow. but not, not in tune to what's going on, right? And the next thing you know, you're holding your eye and your phone's gone. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not laughing to mock or anything, but I'm laughing right. because 
you know, this is this is something that I've this is on a tangent again, but you know, even in talking with people, friends, whatever, you know, you come into law enforcement and you learn a lot of different things. And what you just talked about is situational awareness. And I tell people all the time, like your head is buried either in a phone or, you know, one example that I always give is, you know, when you're in an elevator, what do most people do? They put their head down, they, they turn away or they try not to look at the people or the person that's in the elevator with them. And we know from situational awareness and from crimes, people that do that for a predator, let's say a rapist or whatever, um, can look at that person and say, this is somebody that is weak and I will be able to get away with whatever it is, the crime that I wanna get away with because this person isn't even engaging me, isn't even looking at me, can't even describe me, doesn't know really what's going on. And so therefore they become a victim. And that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Like it doesn't take the phone, it just takes even just the aspect of just being bashful or shy 100%. or, you know. I I, yeah, I, I often say that I refer back to the animal kingdom. You never see the lion go after the biggest, strongest wildebeest. It's right. always the sick or the wounded, right? Or the or the the one that's tagging behind. That's the one he's picked out for his victim. He is the predator, and you have to decide whether you're going to be a uh, predator or or, or or prey, right? Um, and and it's another Tony Blower. Uh, give him credit for the uh, coining the phrase uh, "predator prey reversal." So mm. he preaches if the 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 prey is not um, predicting a fight. When he or the predator is not predicting a fight when he picks on his prey, right? right. So with that situational awareness, safety, um, then then that's when the fight comes, right? He picked on the wrong wildebeest. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because our number one, one of our number one selling programs for the company I currently work with, is um, situational safety. I never thought I'd be teaching a class on how to make yourself safe, but uh, situational awareness is being aware of what's going on, but not really having a plan. So we kind of uh, went further than that and coined the phrase situational safety. And it's not being paranoid, it's being prepared. And you want to, uh, hey, Howie, if you want to plug that uh, company, it's not a big deal. I can even put it in my show notes as well. Yeah, right on. So yeah, currently I'm working for a crisis consultant group and it gets into one of the questions later. We uh, um, are, I, I, I'm the, uh, head instructor, lead instructor, master instructor, whatever you want to call it, for our active threat response. And we call it active threat compared to active shooter, just because a knife is much as much threatening as a gun. A car is as threatening as a gun. And there's response levels to those things. They don't differ dramatically, but we have to include things that are um, threats, not just gun. And I think we've seen that. We've seen uh, vehicles used in targeting people. We've seen people with knives and other blunt edge, edge instruments uh, creating uh, mass casualties. So the uh, name of the company is called Crisis Consultant Group. Um, and uh, we go all over the country teaching active threat, active response. And uh, the other side of our house is de-escalation. Um, and shoot, we've, we're approaching over 400,000 people trained in our system, yeah. That's awesome. And you, 
went right into the buzzword that I was going to talk about and bring up and it goes right into it. And the buzzword is de-escalation. We talked, I mean, we've heard the president elect Biden even come out before. And he said that, you know, police officers should just shoot somebody in the leg. Um, <laughs> as, as part of the de-escalation technique. And not only that, but just in general, de-escalation, if you can just talk about that and how, what have you done to train on that? What does that mean specifically? And can you give an example of techniques with that? Absolutely, yeah. So de-escalation, man, I was really, I was like, when I first came in, into the company, I was really thrilled about being an active threat instructor and in situational safety. And then um, I started listening more to de-escalation and I really became a, a firm believer in that program and, and teach it all the time now too, um, because it really focused on something we're missing. Um, I think as a country as a whole, um, our basis is treat people with dignity and respect. Right. Um, even when it's not given to you, we talk about rights that you're afforded and should be afforded, but aren't always afforded. Right. Um, we talked about right to personal safety, pers or personal space. And I've seen it given up over and over again by law enforcement, by individuals. Someone says something to you, you know, they, they throw out a bad your mama joke and you're right up in their face. I don't know your skill set, but you just insulted my mom. So I'm going to jump right in your face. Right. Mm -hmm. You just gave up your personal space. The only thing that you might have had to give you, keep you safe. Um, so, and we talk about really, uh, uh, one of the keys to de-escalation is self-awareness, right? Mm -hmm. When you get your buttons pushed, you know, I mean, think about it. How many times you get cussed out when you were on the job? A lot. And, right. And you just kind of eat it, right? Uh, I mean, it's sometimes people just need to blow off steam. You didn't fight everybody that cussed you out. I know, right? It took, goes yeah. back to sticks and stones. But de-escalation um, is not something that is, it, it, let me rephrase that. It could be currently taught in, in academy settings, but it doesn't get the emphasis that it needs. Um, so we, CIT. Great program. We support CIT 100%. What does that stand only, for so people know what that is? Critical incident training. Okay. Yeah, so it deals with um, people that are um, suffering from potential mental illness, alcohol withdrawal, drug withdrawal, um, and, and, and psychiatric um, uh, issues, right? So you could be manic, bipolar. Um, you could have some type of mental disability that is causing you to act the way you're acting, right? And so we break it down from the more intensified program to what we call street level, right? Mm -hmm. Because on the street, I don't have the time to determine if you're manic, bipolar, um, or if you're um, recovering alcoholic, going through with, with withdrawals, um, uh, suffering some type of uh, drug intoxication, what I need to know at that time is, are you a threat to yourself, to me, or others? 
And the question we often ask is, if I could give this guy 30 more seconds, by the time I get that, I already know the answer because he hasn't done anything, right? So we encourage, you know, talk it out. You got times on your side, right? If the, nothing, there's no acts of violence going on or potential for violence, like he's holding a knife or some type of weapon that can harm you, himself, or someone else, then maybe we don't have to rush right in, right? Maybe we have time to talk. Maybe all this guy needs to do or girl needs to do is talk about what's going on, right? And I often try to say, be, be the calm to the storm. Don't, don't bring a storm to the storm, you know? And so one of the challenges, and I'm not, I'm not um, picking on the younger generation at all, but I asked a question in a couple of my classes that I was teaching. When's the first time you got a phone? And the majority of kids in the academy, I call them kids who are 20, 21, got their first phone now at 10 or 11. So how do you think most of their communication is conducted? Text, Twitter, um, you know, they even laugh when you say email, right? Because they're like, oh, God, you're old. Um, no, there's all these other instant ways to talk. And we, we know for a fact, people will say things through technology, they wouldn't say face to face, right? So I noticed a disconnect in some of our practicals and it was more like just the facts, right? Or no empathy shown with folks in, in, in practicals with the recruits. And then I, you know, you could be the old guys and complain about, oh, there's a new generation. They don't know anything. Or you can be part of the, part of the solution. And I started calling around and seeing if other academies were having this problem. And I called down to Virginia Beach and uh, down there to their academy. And they said, yeah, as a matter of fact, we have the same issue. And we take our recruits down to the boardwalk and they have to make 10 contacts with strangers. Hey, I'm recruit so-and-so with the Virginia Beach police. You know, uh, this is my name, blah, 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 what's your name? And have that interaction. So I, I was praising them because they were part of the solution. We need to get our folks who've been communicating through phones for the past 10, 11 years to learning how to talk to people. Because, like I said earlier, you may go a whole career and never fire your handgun. You may go through two or three high-speed police chases. You may put your hands on 20 people, more than that, whatever. But you talk to people every day. And the impression I leave with that person is going to be the impression they shadow the whole police department with. So if I come off, you know, like a guy who got his lunch money stolen, now he's got a gun and a badge, he's going to get even with everybody. I may be setting up my partner for the next encounter with him. Hmm. So I, I think it's, it's very much about self-awareness. What do I bring to the game that day? You know, and, and being aware of how I talk to people. It costs you nothing to treat people with dignity and respect, even when it's not afforded to you. So that kind of talks it. Go ahead. No, that, that, I mean, you, you just, you touched on so many different things and just one small comment in the sense of dignity and respect stands out. And then the word empathy and the lack of it, as far as with their use of, you know, social media and just kind of like the technology generation. And I've had these episodes where I talked about empathy versus sympathy. And I talked about, 
you know, we've talked about use of force and all these different things. And you're talking about a lot of different things that, you know, need to be focused on, which is more of a, um, you said self-aware. And part of that is what I would consider a kind of mental, uh, mental training and preparing these younger officers, this younger generation into what they're about to get into, which is you're talking with people, you are going to be dealing with people's problems and how are you going to be empathetic and how are you going to learn to be empathetic? And, and part of what I see the lack of training and, and you've touched on it is that we're concentrating on shooting, driving and the stuff that the standards that need to be passed. But what about the, you know, the upstream approach of teaching them how to deal with the situations that they may encounter from a mental standpoint, from a, from a health standpoint, from a empathy standpoint, you know, to me, those are things that need to be taught in the academies. Would you agree on that? Oh, I agree with you hundred percent on that. And I think, you know, once again, good cops have been doing this their whole career. They've been doing it long before I ever started. Right. We had to learn it from somebody. And I do give credit once again, back to the um, working in the, in the confinement section, because you know what, if you're incarcerated and your mom dies and you ask me for a phone call and I can't give that to you, there's something wrong with me, right? Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with me. I've seen those things be been refused before because I wanted to be that hard guy, right? And the guy's locked up for his third DWI. Maybe he has a drinking problem, but can you imagine being denied the right to, you know, call your family after a loved one's died, mm. and and the only chance you have of getting it is 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 depending on someone else whether or not they say yes or no. So, going through those experiences, and those are factual experiences that I encountered while I was working in incarceration, and I would say once again, my faith gave me that empathy towards my fellow human being, no matter what his circumstances are, right? And I'm not, that's not to say I didn't struggle with certain uh, crimes that people had, but um, I still had to look at the human aspect of it, right? And I was able to carry those uh, on the street. And it gave me a certain amount of street creds with guys that had been locked up and saw me on the street. They would still call me deputy, when'd you get out? and stuff like that. I remember that, you know, and that's well over 30 years ago. Mm. Or I'd see him in the mall and I'm, I'm like, well, how's this encounter gonna go? <laughs> and you know, it's like, hey man, how you doing? What are you doing? What's going on? Yeah, I'm doing real good. I got a job now and all this stuff. It's because you had a sphere of influence on that person. You yes. might have, you know, you might have that ability to have an influence on someone who's made bad decisions um, and not just be the hard guy. And once again, yeah, I'd say 95%, maybe even higher that of, of police officers are good people who want to help. In an industry that's almost got a million people, you are going to have some bad hires for sure. And it, you know, it's, it's administration's job to get rid of them, um, mm -hmm. not pass them on to the next squad or, or you know, put them in the penalty box. They're truly not capable of doing a job. And I think part of the job is showing empathy. You call a mom up because the chaplain's not working and her 18 year old son um, who they got for a graduation present, a motorcycle just ran into the side of a Jeep at 110 and he's dead. 
You think you're not going to have some empathy? You know, those things, they impact you. And they, I think, give you the ability to pass that on to the next person who's in need. There's a lot of broken people out there, you know. Um, and you can ask anybody I work with. I don't consider myself soft. But I do consider myself empathetic and, and was empathetic um, to, to folks in need, for sure. Um, you, you never have to go look for a fight. <laughs> you know the guys you're going to have to fight, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then again, you know, as the media portrays a lot of times that officers are out com committing tremendous, tremendous amounts of abuse and stuff like that, nobody would be a police officer if you went to work and fought every day, right? You're not getting paid Conor McGregor money to do that. <laughs> and, and, you know, he fights once a year, right? So, uh, so there's a misconception on that side, too, of what it's like. But then again, I've seen very few stories. One that strikes my mind right now was a uh, police officer in New York City who bought a homeless man a pair of shoes, and that made the news. Events like that take place every day. Yep. Changing a tire for somebody on the side of the road is a good deed, right? Um, I, there's a point in my career where you were told not to push cars out of the roadway. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, if they see me not, you know, of course I'm going to push it out of the roadway. Right. But, um, that was me. That was my decision. Right. But I think the majority of people get in this line of work because they want to help people, not, not cause they, they want to, uh, you know, get in a gunfight or, or something like that. Those are usually the ones that end up getting themselves in trouble anyway. But I think, uh, you know, and we're called to wear so many different hats. And then the last thing I'd say on this is, you know, this profession is scrutinized like no other. Um, and someone can do something that doesn't appear to be good on, on surface and may turn out not to be good. But law enforcement as a community across the whole country is scrutinized on the behavior of someone uh, 3,000 miles away. If Doctors have cut off wrong legs. When I had surgery, I had to circle the hand that was, they were going to operate on. I'm like, what's this for? So he gets, so you have the surgery on the hand that you need surgery on. I'm like, thought this guy went to doctor school. <laughs> Doesn't he know? But mistakes have been made. Right. right? Yep. And, and, and um, you know. Well, so. Howie, let me let me ask you, this is the uh, end of the podcast, and I usually give people kind of like a minute or two just to kind of give their, and you've pretty much done that with this, but I'm just going to kind of hone in on the theme of the use of force and, you know, just your wisdom and, and the experience that you've gone through in your whole career. In this episode, keeping that in mind, the topic, you know, please give like your takeaways, your most important takeaways and uh, anything else that you find, you know, relevant, important, um, impactful to listeners, you know, what would be that message? Well, you know, for the uh, police side, train, train and train some more, obviously. Um, if I told you today, tomorrow you're gonna be, or in a month you're gonna be in the fight for your life, would you wait? To the 29th day to start training right and um because you never know when you put on that gun and badge if you're going to be in a fight for your life uh 
cops, uh, police officers, like I said, 95% or higher are good people. They run towards the trauma, not away from it. Um, after 9-11, uh, you know, you couldn't, couldn't buy a meal, couldn't buy a cup of coffee. Someone was there to do it for you. Those people haven't changed. They've only gotten better. Um, it's just that some, a, a few unfortunate incidents and a small minority of the percentage of the population has had a voice in trying to take down law enforcement as a community as being not, not good. Um, it's one thing I, I did see in uh, the, uh, the majority of the hearts and minds of the recruits is that they were willing and able to get into a profession that they knew at some point could end their life, but were still willing to, to take the oath to protect and serve. And, you know, as far as the uh, folks who listen that, uh, that are not in law enforcement, educate yourself. There's a lot of material out there and you will find the knowledge is, is everything when it comes to um, educating yourself towards what it takes to be a police officer, what, it, um, what cases have come out and what facts have been presented and then make a judgment for yourself. Like I said, don't let the news be your, your truth your end all to end all. Um, if it's, you know, something you value or something that, you know, think is, is important to you, take the time to educate yourself on it. Um, force is never going to look good, but it's a part of the job. Um, it's a, the messy part of the job. Um, I think police departments are, are making strides to make their police officers better. The chiefs I know and uh, uh, admire are doing that. And I think we also have to make sure we don't lower the bar um, for our standards, to, but that we keep a good quality standard so we can guarantee the public that we're putting the best patrol officers out on the street to protect the citizens of the, of the jurisdictions that they work for. If we start to lower the bar, then we're going to see, I think, more issues. Um, our training can't cease to uh, 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 evolve. We have to have um, academy staffs that are willing to push the envelope on training. I always thought as my job as a SWAT operator and a uh, instructor at the academy was to make my boss tell me, no, I can't do this and then have an explanation why, and I had an explanation why we should. Didn't always work, but I figured that was my job. In order to get better, we could do the same thing. I was reading an article earlier today, um, and I just want to share it with you if, you have, if we have a couple minutes. Sure, go ahead. But it's a 2012, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, 2018, December in Police One. You know, they were looking at the accuracy rates of police officer-involved shootings in a uh, Dallas PD. I'll mention her name only because the article's out there. Um, and it was done, conducted by Force Science, an institution that I hold in high regard. Bill Lewinsky's a really, really smart man when it comes to science and the use of force. I'd refer anybody listening to check out his website and to look at some of his things. It really explains a lot 
about shootings. But in those cases, officers find a single suspect over half missed their target. Uh, and, and, and single suspect, single officer. Our officer struck at least uh, one round 54, 54% of the time, about a 50-50 split. Um, at 354 rounds, half missed. In one case, there were 23 misses by one person. The ones that hit the most had perfect marksmanship scores and they fired one round. Hmm. Um, mostly incidents involved male, male suspects and male officers. Two thirds occurred in darkness. Four fifths of the suspect displayed a handgun uh, 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 and, and used it. And um, only the suspects were hit more during the daytime. So the takeaways of the training were accountability to shoot and unpredictable and moving targets. So it went right to training, right? So if you're in an agency that doesn't shoot at unpredictable circumstances and moving targets, that's a training scar. Firearms training should uh, replicate realistic and environmental rather than just shooting paper. Police admins should mandate training scenarios in mock buildings or towns to test both shooting judgment and their real life firearm accuracy. And then not be afraid to review negative incidents to learn from the incidents that are not repeated. That's just a synopsis of the article, but it was very powerful because I think the movies and stuff that picked uh, that uh, the hit ratio uh, of officer involved shootings is much higher than it really is. It's about 30% nationwide and that one of those reasons is because there's not enough inoculation training like i said your former guest him and i started a training program it's called train to win and it was all stress inoculation training whole week of it so this everything that you've just talked about you know it encapsulates one word which is train and you said that earlier where you said train 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 and that is Really, it correlates with a lot of different things as far as just even physical, physicalness, oh. uh, emotional, uh, spiritual, like it, it encompasses everything, right? We have to train, we have to build these new neurons and synapses, and we have to do these things in order to gun, in order to make things uh, second nature. Howie Scott, yeah. I am so honored for you to be on this uh, podcast. I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your expert information and your opinion. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm really privileged. So thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Brownie and Blue. That was my honor, man. Thanks a lot.